1: Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Big decisions are hard, particularly when it means you have to give up something now with the hope of getting something good off far off into the future, or more importantly, avoiding a really big cost far off into the future. It's hard because as humans, we tend to overvalue the thing we have right now. It's called the endowment effect. It means we fight much harder to hold on to what we've got than giving it up or having to hope that we'll get something in the future. It's a classic problem in economics and in politics. It means that we tend to favour the status quo and we tend not to invest in the future. And that's a real problem because right now, with climate change, housing affordability, child poverty, all of the mental health and obesity problems we have right now, Those decisions mean some pain now for benefits in the future. So how do we try to overcome this endowment effect, this status quo bias that societies' decision makers have? Think, for example, about a car and the petrol you use in that car now and dealing with climate change. For example, if you really wanted to ensure that we reduced our climate emissions, you'd put up the price of petrol a lot, you'd put up the price of cars a lot, and the price of driving on streets a lot through congestion charges. And you'd use that money to invest in public transport or cycleways or pathways or replanting roads with trees, making sure that we can walk around so that we're healthier, so we're not breathing in quite so many particulates. And so in the end... Not only do we have less warming of the planet and all sorts of nasty greeblies in the air, but we have more trees, healthier bodies, all of that good stuff. We know it's there, but it's quite hard to make that decision, particularly when we're sort of uncertain about whether this could actually happen. There's lots of variables. And the further off you go into the future, the more uncertain you are about those benefits. And one of the ways to look at this problem is to understand cost-benefit analysis, which governments have to make all the time and lots of businesses where they have to work out what are the costs and the benefits of this decision today and the year after that and the year after that and how do we try to discount away the value today of these costs and benefits over the future years? Well, the way to do it is to use what they call a discount rate. And in government terms, for these big decisions on climate change and the likes, it's called a social discount rate. And what it means is that when someone's making a decision about, for example, putting up the cost of petrol and cars, they put a high value on today's costs and today's benefit. And then they slightly reduce that as we go through the years. And the way they do it is with a discount rate. So if you think of it like a bar chart, you slice the top off one year, you slice off even more the next year, and by the time you get to six or seven years, you've got nothing left. And of course, the higher the discount rate, and often it's compared to a percentage like an interest rate, the quicker you get to virtually nothing. And then you stack all those remaining bars on top of each other, the costs and the benefits, to work out what the present value is now. And hopefully, you come up with a number, a present value, which is higher for the benefits than it is for the costs. So that discount rate really matters. Now, why am I talking about it this week? Well, this week, we got the half yearly economic and fiscal update from the government. But we also this week got a report from the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment, Simon Upton, in which he essentially called out the entire structure of the way that we make these decisions in New Zealand government for the last 30 years because we've used discount rates which have been remarkably high and much higher than in other places. And that meant that when we did the numbers on any investment in the future, we very quickly whittled away both the costs and the benefits of that decision over time. And what it meant is that it sort of didn't make sense to invest in anything that was going to last more than about 10 years. Now, we know with climate change and housing affordability and child poverty that most of these investments will last 50, 100, even longer years into the future because, of course, generations of poverty are going to generate increasingly large generations of welfare and justice and health costs. And the same with housing affordability. As people become more disconnected from each other, the housing quality falls, people become more stressed, and all sorts of cascading effects through our society by not solving this problem. But if when you do your analysis, you actually don't care what happens 20, 30 years out, then you don't make those right decisions. You don't invest in infrastructure. And that's the story of New Zealand for the last 30 years we have not invested in nearly enough in our health and our education and our transport and our housing infrastructure, in part because our discount rates were way too high. This is borne out in the decisions the government took this week to essentially use the windfall benefits from strong growth to repay debt rather than to invest it in infrastructure. And if you're wondering, uh, that doesn't sound like what you heard on the news, well, just an extra $4 billion was added to the capital spend plans for the government. And even though it's increasing its budget allowance for spending, it's meant that actually we're going to have a budget surplus two years earlier than expected. This is a problem for not just New Zealand, but the rest of the world. How do we make the right decision by not just our kids, but our grandkids and their kids, when we think that the value of costs and benefits two, three, four years out are much lower than the loss that we're going to suffer right now. It's a problem we have to get over. And it's one we talk about this week on When the Facts Change. I talked to Simon Upton about this structural flaw he's pointed out in the way the government makes decisions, particularly around the environment and long-term effects. And then I talked to Jess Berenson-Shaw, who is an analyst who's done lots of these cost-benefit analyses inside the public sector and talks about the way those decision makers, those advisors are frozen in time, risk averse to the point of not wanting to change anything, in part because they've been taught to discount the future. Welcome to Simon Upton, who is the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment. Welcome Simon to Win the Facts Change. Oh they've changed have they? <laughs> well, it's interesting the way that the government has started talking about budgets and in theory thinking about budgets has changed to a well-being approach, but you've done a really good report putting the environment lens over that well-being budget thinking. And what did you find when you did your report on whether this well-being talk is actually turning into well-being actual analysis and decisions?
2: Well, let me back up uh, Bernard and say that this report is actually the third of a trilogy. Uh, I started two years ago when I reviewed the state of environment reporting in this country There's an act a state of environment reporting act and i wasn 't terribly impressed because I think if you 're going to have make decisions about you know what you need to do about the environment, you make investments and in big long term problems that you need to know what the problem is, and the state of environment reporting is none too flash so I suggested some changes to the way we do things there and then I thought well actually even if you had good information you have to be able to interpret it and some of the problems we have are highly complex and there's a lot that we don't know so I thought well I assume that our major, it's not small, public investment in environmental research would be trained on the things we don't know. And I did a report a year ago on that one. And that showed that we are indeed spending quite a lot of money, but there is no line of sight between what state the environment reporting is telling us and where we're spending our research dollars. So having had those two pieces of somewhat uh, troubling news, I thought, well, OK, let's see how the lack of information is... Uh, hindering our budget processes, and I have to say I went into this uh, third review assuming that what I would find is that uh, there were a lot of attempts to make the link with environment and they weren't very successful because of the state of environment information and that this is why state of environment uh, information would be a priority for improvement. In the end, we couldn't find much evidence uh, of the search for making a link between environment and well-being in any of the stuff we looked at. Uh, and we, we worked with, closely with the Treasury. Uh, and they were <clears throat> very helpful. They, they shared a lot of information on the last three well-being budgets. And we 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 were trying to make to try to find the evidence. Um, that there was a link, and, and I was assuming the evidence would be well, there isn't very good information, so uh, there's a lot to improve. But we couldn't even find the evidence that really that, that there was a systematic attempt to bring, particularly long term well being, the intergenerational stuff, into the frame. So, where it, where it leaves me is that there's, I'm sure, a desire to ensure that the environment is part of your well being budgets, but there is so much uh, to be done. Um, At this stage, you can't really say uh, that we have a system which is properly linking the two.
1: One of the really interesting gnarly problems around thinking about uh, how public policy affects the environment and the spending decisions we make or not make is the long-term nature of it. And climate change is the classic example where we're talking about decades and decades, centuries of emissions building up in the atmosphere how does the way that government, Treasury, analyse decisions, how does that affect the way we value the things that are happening out in the way distant future, out to future generations?
2: In a nutshell, the answer really is that the way we look at things inevitably tends to be driven by the short run. It tends to be what's current. Now, right now, there is a focus on climate. And let's be honest, you know, there is an attempt, I think, to start spending money and changing the direction of things with a longer term in mind. Let's see. I mean, we're going to be told, aren't we, that there's going to be a climate budget as such, uh, that they're going to bring the climate expenditure together. I hope they do. The Climate Commission's recommended that. So we may be starting to see the change. But broadly speaking, what the Treasury has has traditionally looked for from uh, agencies that are making bids for money is evidence that at the margin, it's going to make a difference. And, of course, uh, the question is over what time frame. And when you start applying things like a social discount rate of 5%, which is what it is currently, what you are doing is radically disadvantaging things which have a very long-term focus, that it's always worth doing things today than doing things tomorrow. Uh, And so one of the recommendations we make is that they really need to review the way they use discount rates when it comes to these long-term intergenerational issues. But it's it's more than just a simple tool like a discount rate. I mean, what we should be trying to do is get better information, sure, about the environment. But then, I think that the Ministry for the Environment and Treasury should actually, on an ongoing basis, be engaged in forecasting, trying to get a sense of where the trajectory is taking us. And what are the consequences of that trajectory? And those consequences will, in part, be fiscal. They could potentially open us to very considerable costs. And we need to understand that, and then we need to sensitivity test different policies, just, to you know, what sort of a difference they'd make. Now, the example that I um, came across in the work that I did on weeds, which came out a month ago, and I've used it again in this report, um, is wild and conifers. It's fascinating. Uh, we're spending, 100 million dollars worth of taxpayers money over four years trying to get wild conifers under control. The modeling that's been commissioned on the problem suggests that you might need to spend another 300 million. So there's 400 million on just one little corner of the biodiversity uh, puzzle. That problem was known about decades ago. It has been talked about and observed. It's been starting to happen, starting to grow, starting to get worse, it wasn't until the thing was really in full throttle that you had a coalition of, you know, farmers whose land was getting covered with stuff, and tourism operators, or the views disappearing from the bus, and people who'd had their houses burnt down, at Ohio, you know, wildfire, and all of it. Suddenly, conifers are, 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 are the issue of the moment, and so we have to throw a bucket of money Now, I could tell you that there are other weeds out there which are going to cause problems, which are just getting going. Where is the analysis which says, well, listen, spending $1.5 now is going to potentially avoid very significant expenditure long run. And and this applies across so many areas in the environment. Uh, But because we don't have the information... And then we, we we don't have the tools with which we can model the stuff. We really don't know. So you tend to wait till the problem arises. Uh, so I'm trying I'm trying to persuade people that you know if you have good information, you got your research focused on the right topics, and you've got a budget system which is prepared to look at things over the long run. We might start to be able to head off some of these problems. Surely that should be the aim to avoid getting into a position where we are faced with not many choices, but a lot of cost. We want to keep options open.
1: Now, one of your recommendations is to look at lowering the social discount rate applied when Treasury and other um, departments do cost-benefit analysis. And the best example, and it was great that you picked it out, was the Stern report into the potential costs and benefits of uh, addressing climate change, where the Stern report used a much lower discount rate, not the 5% that Treasury uses on most projects, but more like, I think it was 1.3%. Can you sort of tease out how how that changes the equations on climate change if you use a lower social discount rate?
2: Well, well as I said before, if you, if you use a lower social discount rate, the numbers tell you uh, that it's going to be worth doing more. Um, today than delaying but currently the sorts of values that we use tell you that it's not worth doing that. I mean f- at the time Stern's uh, conclusions were uh, a bit contentious but I think these days he might even suggest that they were still conservative, what, what he'd been proposing. There's a special section of the report in which we uh go into this in some detail and and i think your listeners might be really interested in reading it in fact if they want to go to the online version says he looking through the pages it starts at page 111 and it goes through to page 119 page 120. it's worth having a look but we've we've actually looked at how our use of discount rates um uh, compares with other countries and you know uh, we're using a higher rate than the united kingdom um, the United Kingdom, where, where it's looking at a, a horizon of, say, 76 to 125 years, the UK uses 2.5. Beyond that, they use two. Anything over 200 years, 1.5. No, uh, w- whether or not those are the right values, they've actually got rates with longer and longer time horizons in mind so that you don't discount those very long things. Uh, same thing with France, uh, Norway, Netherlands. Um, we really don't give any guidance on long-term discount rates at all. And so uh, the result is that we are uh, almost, as a, as a matter of course, mechanically discounting the, pros, uh, the the future. Now, I think the government would say, I think the Treasury would say, Look, hold on, hold on, we're not, we're not monolithic about this. We don't only have to rely on that. Fine. Uh, I'm sure that is the case. But if that is the case, I think they should be uh, explicit... I mean, I think we're entitled to know when would you depart from the 5% discount rate that you're operating because that is a normative decision. I I think the the decision to give more weight to the future than the present is ultimately, this is not an economistic issue, a mathematical issue. It's a normative issue. And if you decide to, to stick with a higher rate, you are making a decision that you will put the short term Ahead of the long term. Now, ultimately, that should be being debated in Parliament. I think that is a that's a fair game political issue to debate. It's not just a technical issue.
1: Yeah. The other uh, interesting angle you looked at here was that there are other ways of thinking about these decisions, uh, and in particular, here Wilder, which is being developed as an alternative to the living standards framework put forward by Treasury. You're saying that maybe a well-being is, is not the sort of machine that delivers the best result in, in the long run.
2: Well, there is no such thing as well-being. There are well-beings. There are different views. I mean, these, are, these can be cultural views. Uh, and, and indeed, we spent quite a lot of time in the report trying to understand how Māori see well-being. Uh, and in fact, again, in my introduction, I really urge readers to take a look at the the excellent essay that John Reid from uh, Canterbury University, uh, he wrote a piece on how uh, Maori wellbeing ethics might or might not relate to what the Treasury is using with its living standards framework and the way the government conceives of well-being. Uh, and, and they are in conflict and it's not for the Parliamentary Commission of the Environment to solve that, but the the idea that you can alight on a single definition of well-being may be very, very challenging. Um, so the question is, do you have to reach closure on that to do something? We know we have a series of environmental challenges which are multi-generational, which in some cases involve tipping points, which will take us, in- they're irreversible, they'll take us into a different a different territory. Uh, so. Rather than having a debate about the contribution to well-being, shouldn't we just get on in the meantime while we're having that debate and start solving some of these issues? I mean again, to give the Treasury its due, it has sought to try to understand this from other viewpoints. It just hasn't been landed.
1: The tipping points issue is really interesting as well because the way that we have traditionally looked at the costs and benefits of decisions is sort of straight line. But as you point out, and as we've seen with the climate change debate, uh, tipping points matter. And actually, you have to think about those sort of tipping points, grey swans, black swans, when you are trying to understand and make decisions that have long-term implications.
2: Yes, indeed. And that should be an essential part of the informational uh, toolkit Available to decision makers, um, they should be aware that some of these things, some of the resources we're talking about, are not substitutable. For instance, and it's and it's not easy territory, Bernard. I, I I don't think the idea would be correct that you could simply send a bundle of boffins out and they'll, after a few years, come back and give you some precise numbers on these are these are the tipping points. It's not like that. I mean, the, the environment. You know, it happens at so many different scales globally. Science and policy has tried to say 1.5 degrees is as far as we can afford to go beyond that, this tipping point. That's sort of real global, global, global level stuff. At the level of a lake in New Zealand, the tipping point between where it goes from being oligotrophic to eutrophic. Um, that can be a, quite a precise thing. You mustn't let the phosphorus and nitrogen go beyond a certain point. You know? So there's, what the tipping points are depends on scale, depends on the issue. So uh, it's not a nirvana to say, oh, look, if we just had some tipping points, we, we could sort of stay on the right side of the line. It's complicated stuff. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm just saying this because I don't want anyone to think there's a naive scientistic sort of answer waiting to be had if we just had some better numbers. The end of the day, you are inevitably making value judgments about what options you leave to future generations. What the budget process should be able to do is to give us some transparency about how those we've elected are making those trade-offs. Currently, that's very opaque.
1: Because sometimes that's quite convenient for politicians when they don't have the information in front of them, <laughs> because then, then they can say, well, I didn't know. Yes. And also others looking on the decision can't uh, really point to a particular piece of information to say, actually, that's the wrong decision. Look over there.
2: And, and, I, and, and I'm interested you say that because this is where I think the world's changed. I grew up in a world uh, where I can recall my father repeatedly saying, what you don't know can't hurt you. <laughs> no, it was a, and 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 these days, I just keep saying to people, "What you don't know almost certainly will hurt you." This is, this has been our experience. But that's a, there's a cult, there's a massive sort of cultural um, and civilizational shift. That what you didn't know, look, just get on and you know get on with it. Don't worry about it. That was very much the world we we're in. We are now discovering so many things that if we would only known about them, we wouldn't have gone to where we've gone to. Um, th- that we need to take a more prudent and cautious approach, and we need to understand the systems we're playing around with. We don't, uh, in many cases. Uh, so that and that takes you back to the research budget. You know, I think uh, uh, we need to be ensure that we are spending what needs to be spent on research in a way that actually helps us unlock the knowledge. We need to then monitor the environment to know how to stay away from those danger points. In many cases, we don't. Simon
1: Upton, the uh, Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment, and I'd recommend all of our listeners to jump onto that 200-page report on the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment's website. It's a cracking read. Thank you very much, Simon. Thank you. Next up, we talk to Jess Berenson-Shaw, who is an independent analyst who's done an awful lot of these cost-benefit analyses and has some clear views on what we need to improve. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's Kiwi Bank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, with his prediction on what we can expect from the housing market and interest rates for 2024.
2: We've seen quite a correction in housing across the country. So house prices fell from the lofty levels that we saw in 2021. The Reserve Bank has pushed house prices down by design and by lifting interest rates to very eye-watering levels. I think the housing market has found a bottom, and I think we'll see house prices rising over 2024 and into 2025, 26. The housing market will be better balanced. We have seen a a surge in migrants, which is adding demand to the housing market, and I think we'll see house prices naturally lift on the back of that surge in migration and uh, hopefully an easing in interest rates later on.
1: Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other Kiwibank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses.
0: Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tāmaki Makaurau, Jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt/cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record
1: of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz get advice A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Makiora well, and welcome to Jess Berenson Shaw from the workshop in Wellington. Uh, Jess, you've spent a lot of time looking through all sorts of accounts and business cases that fly around the government. What do those processes within the government sort of force decision makers to do around short term versus long term spending and thinking about costs?
0: Yeah that's an interesting question right and I come at that question from a position of thinking about the role of the public service and government as being about building well-being both now and into the future and that's a really wide term but for me that means ensuring that all our communities are getting what they need but also that the environment that supports us our kind of our biosphere is going to actually continue to be able to support us into the future. So that's the lens that I bring to looking at um, how decisions are made. And one of the reflections that I have is at the moment, our systems do not allow us to make decisions that prioritise those things very well.
1: So there's a lot of talk about well-being budgets and the Treasury has a living standards framework in which it thinks about things like social capital and natural capital. But it's interesting, in Simon Upton's report into the well-being budgets, he makes the point that there hasn't actually been a lot of change in the way the Treasury and other government departments think about costs and benefits when they're thinking about projects. In particular, Simon Upton's report talks about the problem with the social discount rate. So from someone who's worked inside the machinery of government, why is a social discount rate important when you're trying to make those decisions?
0: Well, should we, we go back and I never assume that people know what a social discount rate is. So then you tell me how you would explain to, say, my child what a social discount rate is, because I think it's really important that people understand what's going on there.
1: So my understanding is that when Treasury looks down at all of the costs and the benefits over the next 10, 20, 30 years of a project or a particular type of spending, they look at the returns coming in year after year, and then as they go out year three, year four, year five, they essentially slice more and more of the benefits off to account for the fact that there is less value now in the returns coming further and further out. And the higher and higher the social discount rate is, the more they slice and slice and slice off the returns. So by the time you get out 10, 20 years, if you have a high discount rate, then there's basically no value in anything that's been generated positively out 10, 15 years. So what it means is that you essentially are forced to think mostly about spending in the short term because your models tell you there's sort of no point in investing in the long run.
0: Which is interesting because I don't think that my 12-year-old would agree that there's no point about thinking about what her life and her peers' life and the environment that they live in is going to be like in 30 years' time. And I think what you're showing us is that the assumptions that underpin a lot of the decision making are really set in this very old-fashioned and frankly incorrect way of thinking about how we live in our world and how we are connected to it and what matters as well. So you have a system of making decisions which says that the future doesn't matter. It doesn't matter as much as the money that we have now. And if you dig right down underneath that, you know, what are the stories and mythologies and assumptions that are driving that are so um, kind of, I guess, abhorrent really to what matters to humans. So we have a system that is kind of, in a way, not human, <laughs> which is hilarious and Incredibly depressing. (laughs) Because we've got these big
1: intergenerational issues ahead of us. Climate change, housing affordability, child poverty, diabetes, all of these things where you can be fairly clear about the costs that are building up out there, and you know they're not going to get smaller. These are things that um, you can see in the distance, and if you changed some spending here and there, you might actually get a benefit. But because you've got, let's say, a 5% or a 6% discount rate, it means you don't make that decision because out 10, 15, 20 years' time, once that one-year-old is 21, it actually doesn't mean anything in in what they call the CBAX, which means cost-benefit analysis.
0: X! (laughs) The
1: system they use.
0: Which... What it suggests to us, and I suspect what it suggests to people listening, is that that tool is no longer fit for purpose. That facing the kind of current big problems that we have in the world and needing the kind of changes that would make the big difference, the tool that we're using is not helping us anymore. And we need to find new tools for, you know, new challenges. Because, you know, there is... When we're dealing with, and Simon Abden said this in his report, when you're dealing with complex interactive systems like biospheres, for example, or even human communities. And it is almost impossible for us with our current systems to understand what the benefits are of, or actually, it's not impossible for us to understand because I think instinctually we know what the benefits are what's difficult is that these models can't model those benefits of into the future of actually doing something and and when you think about it how could we possibly discount away the benefit of survive, of, of maintaining and and kind of protecting the biospheres which support our life. I mean, the fact that it allows, the tool allows us to discount that away suggests very, very strongly that it's not a tool that's up to the job for the current issues that we're facing.
1: Particularly when you're making decisions that will create an asset or an improvement 100 years out. Yeah. It seems to me this um, modelling really is focused almost in a way on the value that today's adult puts on long-distance benefits, which, when you look at behavioural economics, says that we tend to discount away benefits in the future and put a very high value on something we're losing right
0: now. Yeah, which is interesting in itself, right, because some of that research has been proven, you know, that it can't be replicated, that that is, in fact, not the case. And, And when we think about it, it's an extremely Western paradigm, because there are multiple cultures that do not discount out the future. If we think about, for example, within Te Māori, you know, everything is focused both on what I as an ancestor one day are going to do for, you know, future generations. So in lots of ways, again, it's reflective of a very narrow, very outdated kind of mindset about what matters in the world and how we measure that. And, you know, I think one of the opportunities here for the public service is to get way more innovative about how we think about and develop tools to measure the things that matter and invest in them and within New Zealand we have things like hmm, the Treaty of Waitangi which would allow us to you know essentially ensure that we have tools that are fit for purpose because there is leadership in the space already from Marty. So, you know, again, for me, I think big picture about what could we do differently? Where does the opportunity sit within, for example, the public service? I know that so many people in the public service go into it because they actually deeply care about both people and the environment. They want to see changes that will make a big difference in place. They feel you know, constrained and constricted by the current systems and the opportunity is there for us to think and do this differently.
1: As someone who's looked at a lot of cost-benefit uh, analysis of, of social spending, health spending, why do you think we've got to this this point where there's a real scepticism about new spending and spending that has a, I suppose you could call it a hard-to-measure benefit further and further out.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting, and I think there's a few reasons for that. I think we, like any organisation, you get into a series of practices and ways of doing things, and they are upheld by the way in which people think about things and the assumptions that they make. and. We know, for example, Marilyn Waring's been talking for decades now about the assumptions that have underpinned um, how we think of the economy. We've, for example, completely discounted the work that primarily women do in caring. In fact, all caring work doesn't even count in the economy, yet we couldn't function and our economy couldn't function without that. She's talked increasingly about the, the kind of the the disappearing of the environment within those models as well. And once those assumptions are built in that these things don't matter, that they don't count, uh, that we can't account for them somehow, then they just become part of the mindset and culture. And people don't even see that we haven't included them. And so you have a system that's built up around protecting the current system, You also have people whose mindsets are in place around protecting the current system because for some people, change can be hard. And Simon Upton said it himself in that report. You know, he said, "I, you know, big transformative change is hard, so I'm only recommending small change. And, you know, what I would say is that um, innovation is exciting. And, you know, taking opportunity um, and using um, all the potential that exists in the public service in ways that um, are creative and um, would help us think differently and act differently is actually, it's not something to be frightened of. And I think that's what he was saying, that it's something we should be frightened of. And it's not. So I think there is, again, a mindset that you know, just small tweaks around the edges are just fine for now. So I think that holds us in place as well. We, As a result, I think what we have in the public service is perhaps, um, while there are lots of people who are enthusiastic and care about big changes, they find it hard to operate in that space. Um, they, there aren't structures and systems in the place to really embrace their way of thinking and to to use it in different ways. So they often end up leaving. Um, and I think it, what we've had is, you know, probably 30 years of the hollowing out of the real um, kind of innovative, um, new thinking uh, you know in other countries in our jurisdictions for example in the UK we see a lot more um, both entities related to government and funded by government and in fact within government that are interested in innovation development and new thinking than we do in New Zealand and I can't help but think partly that's because of what happened here in the 80s um, Is we're now fearful of, of change in some ways.
1: Just to finish off, uh, one of the interesting things in the report was this idea of tipping points. And it's clear in our um, thinking about climate change that it's it's quite possible we could have tipping points for the climate, but uh, that is also just not accounted for in the way that we make these decisions. How how should um, uh, government think about these tipping points, not just the environmental ones, but the social ones, you know, um, things don't change at all much, and then they change real
0: fast. Never rains at pause, right? Um, yeah, and I think it's very, so people have a lot of, um, I guess, bias that stops them from thinking that everything that you have predicted and that your people are telling you is going to happen will happen. We have, it's a protective mindset, I guess, and and you see that you know, in disaster planning, but you also see it in failing to plan for a pandemic, for example, which did inevitably come, like the experts said that it would. Um, and so, there there is this space, which is how do you create a space for more risk? Taking, How do you create a space in which risk is allowed? And I I don't simply blame people in the public service for this. You know, there are strong incentives to not take risk from both outside and people in media, but also from government ministers because of the political cycles. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't create a space for risk to happen because you know, we're at a space now where we actually need to do all of the things. Some of those things will not be cost effective. Some of those things will not work out, and many of them will fail. But because the scale of the issues that we're facing are so serious and so beyond what we have really faced before, certainly in terms of climate, we need a whole new way of thinking about This And it really does involve embracing all of the things and finding a way to invest in them and to accept the losses that come. And I think Mariana Mazzucato does a really great job from an economics point of view of talking about what that might look like, practically speaking, in terms of how can governments shape markets around the kinds of things that really matter, both now but intergenerationally as well. And how can we start accepting that there will be risk involved with shaping those markets, but there has to be partnerships between across business, the not-for-profit sector, government, eWE, in which we are willing to come together and take large risks.
1: Jess Berrington shaw from the workshop. Thank you so much. I'll, I'll let you get on with the job of convincing a bunch of risk-averse people to take risks. Got <laughs> <laughs> it. When the Facts change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off.
0: Kia ora e tewi. te butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate.